Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Ellen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Yoav Artsy, who is an assistant professor at Cornell uh, with appointments in the Department of Computer Science and at Cornell Tech. Yoav has done a whole lot of work. I guess I remember him mostly from the semantic parsing work that he did, like at University of Washington with Luke Zettelmoyer and others. Yoav, it's good to have you on the program. Thanks, Matt. Today we wanted to talk about visual reasoning. Give an overview of this kind of stuff because, Yoav, you've been doing a lot of work in this recently with a couple of data sets. So we thought it would be good to have you on to talk about what this is, what people have been doing, what data sets and models look like for this kind of stuff. So do you want to start us off with a description of what visual reasoning means? I think definitions of tasks are always a tricky thing because whenever you define something, someone will come along have a different definition in mind, they write a few papers and everything will broaden up. So I'm always cautious with that. I had the same experience in the past with semantic parsing. I had a very specific definition in mind and it seems to be broadening and broadening and kind of like changing over time. I think like some of the our initial correspondence, you, you put a, a kind of like something that got me thinking. So if I have to write something down, I would say it's like reasoning about natural language and a visual stimuli. Uh, to generate an output that depends on the combination of both. So I hope this is general enough so it won't, uh, so, you know, the next archive cycle won't uh, make it completely invalid. Yeah, yeah, definitely this is something that's very broad and we're just trying to get an idea of, like, what's the range of stuff in here. I think that's a good, a good description. So specifically you're saying my input is both language and images uh, and I'm going to output something. Why do I need both of those to do visual reasoning? So it's, it's also it is about the grounding and, and the output is, I would say it's important actually it depends on both. It's a degenerate example, but I can take language and text and just do semantic labeling on the text and throw the image. And sorry, I can take language and images. So that definitely won't be visual reasoning. The goal, at least the way we are looking at it, is to really think about what's the, what's the grounding of language. What's the meaning of language in the sense of, like, of a grounding in a, in a visual input. And that allows you to do a much more interesting reasoning. It's a lot about spatial relations. It also can get you to do interesting reasoning as far as like other linguistic phenomena that uh, we have been observing. Now, I think something something happened in the visual reasoning. When, the, when we started using this term in the last uh, probably a year or so, it's a relatively fresh term. A lot of it came about because of emphasis on certain phenomena in data collection. It's not that the task didn't exist before under different names. So I would say that visual QA definitely falls under uh, this definition, but the use of the term visual reasoning started when we switched data collection process to have a very specific emphasis. And what emphasis is that, would you say? So I think the emphasis would be on a kind of like very broad representation of linguistic phenomena, and then you can tie it with a more complex types of reasoning. So there's been a lot of impressive work on visual QA. It's, it's a data set that definitely kind of like kicked out a lot of research. But then there has been some follow-up works, uh, even from the people who uh, created the data set, about uh, some of the linguistic biases and linguistic simplicity that is there. And in, you know, in visual QA, the language in a way outlines the computation, the reasoning that you're going to do. So if the language is, uh, is relatively simple, the type of reasoning you will be required to do is relatively simple. And that doesn't stress test the, our models in the way that you would like to do. So I guess 
Other kinds of things that involve vision and language are like image captioning. Also something that seems related is like in situ, which is like scene parsing kind of stuff. How would you put those in relation to how you're thinking about visual reasoning? Yeah, so caption generation is definitely something I would include. It's, it has all the components that, that fulfills the requirement. There is a very difficult evaluation problem in caption generation, which personally scares me. I think other people might have more, uh, are more courageous. Now, scene graph parsing I'm less familiar with. There is other tasks like what the, the, the Imcito corpus does, which I hope I'm pronouncing it right which is basically doing some kind of like semantic role labeling, but on, on a, a visual input. I would say that doing something like a semantic role labeling or a visual input is not a natural language task. It's very similar to ImageNet. You know, ImageNet uh, took WordNet and from that created a classification, a object recognition task. In situ, uh, took it, uh, you know, one level up. So now we are trying to recover these frames from images. But the only relation to natural language is that we are taking this resource that was used extensively in NLP and, and originally developed by NLP people. Yeah, I guess thinking about what does it mean to reason over an image? So you have some example tasks that we'll get to in a minute that you, as you said, describe the reasoning you might want to do over an image in language, right? For example, Maybe I have an image with a bunch of shapes in it, and I, I have a question like, is there a triangle touching a corner of a box? Something like this. So the interesting thing in your perspective, and I also agree this is really interesting, is how do I understand the reasoning that was described in the language and then execute that those reasoning steps over the image in, in some way? So you have to have some kind of implicit or, or explicit structured representation of the image and of the language so that you can match these two, right? What if I just had completely synthetic programs that, that describe the reasoning over the image instead of like natural language text? Would this still fit to you? So it potentially captures the reasoning process, but it's, but it's not really a natural language problem. So one of the, one of the you know, there, there are some key properties of natural language that are really important to make it a natural language problem. And, I, and when you have formal, formal programs, that's really presented. So, you know, there, so there is a ambiguity, there is sparsity, and there is the scale of the lexical resource. So these, these are like the basic building blocks of, of natural language. That, and these are the things that make it so challenging. You know, when you build on top of those, you start to have other problems like, a, like syntactic ambiguity and the compositional structures that are becoming harder and harder to interpret. Yeah, I guess uh, in understanding images, you might call visual reasoning, like even to just take a program to understand what it means to execute that program over the image. This is, this is a non-trivial problem, but it's more of a vision problem than an NLP problem. And the reason that we as NLP folks are interested in this is because we want to know how do people express these programs or, or this like abstract computation or whatever in language in a way that we can understand it and know what it means, how it corresponds to the, the visual reasoning that's more of the vision problem. Is, is that fair? Yeah, so, so if, to, if, to go, if to go back to your example of a program, so I, I wouldn't say it's only a vision program because there are other aspects of higher level reasoning depending on how you, you know, what's the learning problem. You know, if you have a program, you want to learn what are the, each of the operators are doing. There might be some aspects of planning. So it, it, it potentially goes above vision, but from a natural language perspective, it, it covers some of the problem, but it doesn't uh, cover the whole problem. So when we talk about visual reasoning, at least in my group, we have this, we talk about natural language visual reasoning because this natural language aspect is, is for us at least very critical. Right. 
I think we've got a good enough handle of what exactly the range of things we're talking about are. We want situations where we're connecting natural language with vision in some non-trivial kind of setting. Yeah, and this can start with very simple examples. So you can say something like there is a blue umbrella. That's, that's a, it's a very simple uh, example. You have an existential, you have, a, you have an adjective modifying a noun. You basically, all you have to do is just find the umbrella and, and, and validate its, its color. And it can be more complicated. So you can say something like there are five umbrellas, uh, three on a rack and two held by people. One of those is half open. This is much more complicated. I think that, at least for current models, it's very challenging. But it's the same problem on the other end of the complexity range. Yeah, definitely. And I want to dig more into that. I think we should talk about specific data sets first. And maybe, I think that was a reference to your most recent natural language visual, visual reasoning 2 or squared or however you say this data set, right? Yeah, I don't think it's an example from there. <laughs> it's just an example I came up with. Or related to that. But, uh, but, this, but this is kind of like, the kind of things that we have been trying to emphasize and uh, express in recent work. Yeah. So do you want to describe this data set? And then I want to dig into some details. Yeah, so about a year and a half ago, we had this data set called Natural Language for Visual Reasoning, NLVR. And this data set basically was really focused on, uh, on trying to get more broader coverage of semantic phenomena. Uh, the data set was based on synthetic vision. So we could create, we could create a highly controlled visual stimuli. And uh, Elaine Zor, my student, uh, put a lot of effort and creativity in creating, in building an environment that will elicit very specific kinds of natural language descriptions. And then we had this uh, data collection process, which I won't get into too much detail, but the goal of the data collection process was to collect natural language descriptions and pair them with, with both with images where they're true and images that they're false. So you have a relatively balanced data set of uh, where each sentence appears with, with images for, its, for which it is true and with images for which it is false. And because of how the visual stimuli is constructed, it uh, rules out uh, this kind of the, the type of simple examples that I showed. So examples like there is a blue triangle are unlikely to be discriminative between uh, as, as required in the data collection process. So you get, you get more complex uh, natural language uh, statements. Right, and one drawback of that data set was that it had synthetic images and you recently released a new one that has natural images, right? Yeah, so one problem, it's a major deficiency of data set, it has synthetic images. Now you would say, okay, we are natural language people, we don't care about vision, but actually it also influences the kind of language you can get. So it had a tiny vocabulary of slightly over 200 words. And the reason for that is because it was a very synthetic toy environment. So we thought, okay, we, let's go and just apply this process to a real images, and then we can collect similar data with the same uh, properties, uh, linguistic properties, just with the real images. That was our starting point. It proved to be a much more complicated. And one of the first things we bumped into is that actually, you know, when we generate images, we can easily control what how the visual stimuli look like. So we can easily control. So if we want certain type of language, we can manipulate the environment in a specific way. In real images, uh, it's it's impossible. We can, we don't have, we can't generate images in a reliable way that will uh, allow us to control them uh, in such a fashion. So we had to figure out a way to collect images that will support the kind of reasoning we wanted. So we started by 
collecting a large set of images that is aligned with ImageNet synthet, so you know, so you can use uh, previous models to kind of like uh, to initialize whatever model you have. Then we filtered these uh, images according to some criteria of interestingness that we defined, and then we paired them together to pairs of images, and we end up showing to people sets of pairs of images, and we ask them to compare and contrast between pairs. That's really interesting. So would you get an example as complex as the one that you mentioned earlier? Like there are four people sitting on a bench with three umbrellas and one of them is half open, something like that? Okay, so maybe I should have done my homework a bit better and, and, uh, and prepared like a few dozen examples from the data. So I, I don't, this, uh, this specific example, I don't know, but you do get uh, stuff like, you know, we have an example in the paper that kind of like probably paraphrased from memory. Examples like you have a, a set of items like uh, in the paper, it's acorns, and uh, they are on, there is a specific background and two of these items are uh, in specific orientation to one another. So they are, their backs are facing to one another. And so I would get a positive example with a particular image and a negative example with another image. Like I'm just trying to understand what biases you get it, because I only have yes, no labels. Am I going to get odd distributions with like overly complex stuff? Like I don't even know how to express this very well. If, if we run with this like two umbrella example, um, if I just change two to three, uh, mm-hmm. What we're really testing is: Does the model can the model count? Like this is this is getting into some complex semantics, and it seems hard to test with just yes/no questions. I don't know if I'm phrasing this very well. So what you're going to get at the end is you're going to get you're going to take this sentence, and uh, this sentence is going to be paired with four pairs of images. Uh, for two of the pairs, it's going to have the label false, and for two of the pairs, it's going to have the label true. So the, the, goal, the goal there was to create a data that is relatively robust to linguistic biases. Uh, you know, so something that happened in VQA, for example, is that people tend to des- certain things that people tend to describe are always false, and certain things are always true. And neural networks are apparently are pretty good at picking up on these biases. Uh, although for humans, it's actually potentially a bit more difficult. So once you are a bit more robust to these uh, language biases, then it's uh, yeah, it starts to become uh, dependent on more complex reasoning. So in some of these cases, yes, you have to, the model has to count. In other cases, it has to really evaluate how uh, objects are aligned to one another in, in one way. It's really kind of like a very uh, visually, it's properties that are difficult to discern, especially for current models. In other cases, it has different. Pro- it uh, kind of like latches to different properties of the image, like uh, like the background color and stuff like that. In many cases, you get these combinations of them. So you get this condition and this condition are true, whereas in the examples that are false, maybe only one of the conditions is false while the other is actually still true. So you have to think about this uh, uh, kind of like a, this, uh, conjunctions of, uh, of multiple conditions. And, and the person who looks at the sets of images, they need to decide what is in com- what's there in common. And like the, this, this question is answered by the person who's looking at, at the pair of images. You don't do any filtering to kind of try to infer this before you show the sets of images? So the, so the images themselves are, are filtered to kind of like to create more interesting stimuli. That's, that's partially the reason why we deviated from using a more traditional uh, image sets like MS Coco because they're very object focused and relatively simplistic. But the, the person who writes the sentence, they get four pairs and they have to select uh, two pairs that, are, that will be the true pairs and two pairs that are, will be the, tr- the false pairs. And then they have to write a sentence that follows the, their selection. 
then we take these sentences and we validate them with a different worker. And that worker, basically we decompose this into four different uh, tasks. So it, it gets one of the pairs it, and it gets the sentence. We know what's the expected uh, Boolean value is going to be, if it's going to be false or true. And now we ask them to basically give us an answer so we can validate against the expected value. Yeah, sounds, uh, the first task seems actually a, a little challenging, I think. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be very easy. Have people been able to, to do this well? I mean, yeah, so it's a very challenging task. It took us a while to refine the process. We had a lot of uh, going back and forth and, and uh, getting, getting uh, some version of the task, putting it out there, seeing that it's not really getting what we want and kind of like reiterating. And we do it with other uh, mechanical Turk tasks in the groups now. Uh, we qualify workers, so we have them uh, go through a small test. And uh, if they pass the test, we let them do the task. In this specific task, because it's so complicated, we also had this kind of like training regime. So when you start doing the tasks, you are, you are a rookie, you are a beginner, and you, are, and, uh, you can only do a, a small set of hits. Now, every time, ev after every cycle, we are going to score you according to how many of your sentences actually following our, the set of guidelines and are providing the interesting linguistic distribution that we, are, we were aiming to get. And uh, if, you are, if you are starting to be good enough, if, you're, if you, enough, enough of your sentences are interesting, we are going to uh, give you a bonus and then move you to, a, you know, to kind of like an expert level so you get exposed to more. So, people have, so we created this very strong stimulus system that basically when you get in, you want to improve, you want to become better at, at kind of like writing these elaborate things. You can think about them as reasoning challenges. And then if you do that well, you get paid more and you get to do more. So you become, you know, happier. I mean, I guess that's how economy works. Yeah, we did a similar process in a recent data collection project that we had for paragraph understanding stuff, asking interesting and challenging questions. I'm glad to hear that the process works for you too. I think this is really key to getting really interesting and good data. Yeah. So I think we've talked so far about two different visual reasoning tasks that you have worked on. There are a bunch of others also. What others would you think are still interesting to work on? Like I know there's Clever uh, and there's this new GQA dataset from Stanford. Do you want to talk about any of these or any others that you're familiar with? Yeah, I mean, so I think the first one that came out and you know, it's, a, it's still VQA and I, suspect, I think VQA still has uh, interesting challenges in it, and you can even reform the task in different ways to do, for example, some kind of a more a zero-shot type of, of learning. So this data set still has a lot of interesting stuff to do with it. it Maybe the field there for the main task is potentially very crowded, and that makes working on it harder. But, you know, when VQ, VQA uh, kind of like the way... Because, this, because of some of the biases and, uh, and relatively simple reasoning there, people try to do more complex reasoning. And because of, it's very challenging to collect this kind of data set, the immediate answer to that was to do a synthetic data. When, once, you write a, if you write, once you write a grammar, and especially if you can generate uh, images, then you can create arbitrarily complex sentences, especially as far as like their nesting. And this is what uh, Clever did. They generated images where you have a, a, a bunch of a, a several objects scattered around in a 3D scene. And they created a grammar that generates uh, sentences that are uh, usually very highly nested. And then you, they, and because they have the generation process under control, they also, have, they also can have some kind of a program representation. And Clever has been uh, it's getting a lot of attention. It's, I think, the performance is at 99.9 .9 point 
Well, no more points, but there is probably a few more nines after that nine. You know, as a language person, I'm still on the fence about how much value there is in, in, in studying synthetic data sets. And I think the fact that Clever was broken kind of like, well, I mean, I don't know if broken is the right term there, but uh, if, if, Clever, if people achieved extremely high performance on Clever, even before people gave the talk at the conference, that's kind of uh, indicative of uh, what was going on. But, it, but it, did, it did lead the community to build a set of uh, very interesting models. And, and, these are the mo and some of these models are the mo are models that we tried on our data set. So these are the, the numbers that we provide. So, th so this is Clever. Uh, along Clever, there, is a, there, are, there are some other simpler data sets. There is a shapes data set that was initially uh, used in uh, the neural model network uh, set of papers. And more recently, there is GQA. GQA, unlike Clever and Shapes, uses real images. So it uses uh, MS Coco and Flickr images that were annotated as, as part of the visual genome effort. Um, I don't have like a good grasp of GQA yet. I read the paper, but I don't think I completely understand the, 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 you know, the mechanics of the generation of the process there. Right, it's pretty new. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think I read the paper actually only yesterday. The claim there is that they were able to generate questions that are uh, relatively robust to all kinds of biases. That's, the, you know, the, the generation process is based on uh, something like uh, 500 uh, templates there. And they have a process to create a, a kind of like a nesting, especially when they describe noun phrases. So if the template has a place for a noun phrase, instead of just putting a, a direct reference to a noun phrase, it can be highly nested. Like, you know, the umbrella on the left of the kid, on the left of the car, on the left of the image, or something like that. The claim, I guess, would be that it requires complex reasoning. Uh, the data set is extremely large. I think something like... A, they have two versions. There is the 20 million version, and then there is a balanced version that has only 1.5 million or something like that. When you generate sentences, you can just probably keep, you know, crunching, generating forever. Do you know what the vocabulary size of this data set is? Like, I would imagine because it's synthetic, it'd be relatively small, right? Yeah, so I think the vocabulary size, uh, it's not as small as, NLV, as the original NLVR. Uh, because the because lexically it's just a richer resource, the visual genome. But I think it's a smaller than LVR two. If I remember correctly, there are something like between two thousand and three thousand types of tokens there. Interesting. Okay. Um, so let's see. Clever and GQA are specifically question answering NLVR and the NLVR two. Is that how you call it? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, these ones are binary yes, no, true, false kinds of statements. We didn't really get into image captioning data sets, but I think it's fine to move on from that. Are there any, any other data sets that you would highlight before we talk about modeling stuff? So there is this uh, very relatively old data set that's called Dense Visual Annotation Corpus. It's uh, from 2014. I think the first author is Mark Yatskar. It's much smaller than any of these, but it comes with very, very dense annotation. Uh, it might have been too, uh, too early when it came out to kind of like get the, get the traction, but it's, it does include a lot of the properties we see in current data sets. Just, you know, they, they chose a different balance of uh, annotation density to a side of the data set. Oh, and right, I, I almost forgot some others. There's one by Jonathan Biss on instruction following in a blocks kind of world. And there, I think in general, there are a bunch of other instruction following on image kinds of stuff, right? 
Yeah, so that's that's actually a great point. So I completely ignored all the instruction following work. So the you know there is Jonathan stuff, there is the sale data set. Uh, we have a number of data sets that have been released in the last year. They definitely require visual reasoning, but they also require more uh, you know action generation and, and planning. So the task uh, is potentially uh, broader in that sense. Okay, great. I think at this point we should move on to talk about how you actually do visual reasoning. Like what are some of the models that actually work for this kind of stuff? Are there really broad trends that you can talk about? So most of the work has been on VQA and there's been a set of models, uh, like m numerous models that came out of there. Uh, I guess you can def you can kind of like, and this is probably a very broad and coarse generalization, but uh, you can probably divide things into models that are trying to impose some kind of structure that is dynamic on the neural networks. And these, I would say, are the neural model network kind of models. And then models that are just trying to have this like very large opaque architecture with different features that are trying to just uh, kind of like solve the task with a static large architecture. So I think the neural module network stuff is really interesting. Maybe, and this is a line of work that was started by Jacob Andreas at Berkeley and has continued on a, a number of related papers since that a few years ago. The way I like to think of it is it's semantic parsing. Like the, there's, there's been a very long history of translating language to programs. And what, what these neural module networks do, at least the way I think of it, is you translate language to a program that has learned parameters. I don't think they were really described this way before, but this is how I've always thought about them. It's a, it's a learned execution model on top of a semantic parser. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think of that characterization? Yeah, I really like that. That's, it, it's, it's a short and, uh, and captures what's going on there. When I look at the models conceptually, and maybe because like you, I have a kind of like, I have a history with semantic parsing. I really like neural model networks. As a language person, they can have potentially this structure of the, of the syntactic structure of the language. So they're doing the computation in what maybe I would consider the right way. Uh, although this is always dangerous because empiricism forever. So Conceptually, I think that they're doing the right thing. Unfortunately, I think that they haven't proven themselves yet. They have some good results on Clever, on VQA. They are usually behind uh, the state-of-the-art models. It's at least last time I checked the results. Maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm wrong. These things, these things are rapidly changing. On NLVR and NLVR2, they are actually the top models. So that's kind of, that, that's something that uh, we were... When we saw it, we thought, oh, this is actually, this is nice. This is cool. These structures are helping. They're required for this kind of complex reasoning. The results in general on, on, on this data set is still, on NLVR and NLVR2 are very, are still very low, especially on NLVR2. Yeah, I, I guess just to give a brief description, I don't know if we described this well enough for the listeners. The way a neural module network works is just to give a, a simple example, like there is a red square on top of a blue triangle or above a blue triangle, you would deconstruct this into a program that has a structure directly analogous to the, the compositional structure of the sentence that we saw. So you might have an above predicate and a blue predicate and a triangle predicate in this programming language. The triangle predicate, I guess technically they have a find that takes triangle as an argument. The, the triangle predicate, when you execute this, would return an attention over the parts of the image that the classifier thinks is a triangle. And then above is a predicate that might take as input the previous attention and shift the attention up to something that, uh, like a different attention for things that are above the input. 
And you can compose these things in a very nice way that seems totally natural for someone who has worked on compositional language reasoning kinds of stuff. So that's, that's that kind of model. And they, as you have said, they work pretty well. You also mentioned another big class of models. You want to give some brief intuition for what these do and how well they work? I mean, so these are more classical and neural network architectures. It's of static architectures that are, you know, they're doing various things. So there are architectures that are more close to something called relation networks. There are architectures that are more based on attention. So there is like, oh no, there are some stuff like film and there are architectures like MacNet. I definitely can't give an exhaustive list. It's very large. These architectures tend to work uh, pretty well. So for example, film is a static architecture. It's very interesting. And it performs roughly the same as uh, the model, model uh, neural network on the original NLVR, on the synthetic NLVR. So the, the, the NLVR with the synthetic images. There are arguments towards both directions. So on the one hand, I can say, oh, we shouldn't try to tell the neural network what to learn. We are just kind of like uh, handicapping it. And so it won't be able to, uh, and it suffers from our biases and our assumptions. Uh, so let's just build this neural network and let the weights do everything. That would be film, magnet, and, uh, and this family. And on the other hand, we'll be, oh, actually, we know how languages structure. There are these recursive structures. There is a lot of compositionality uh, in functions that are being reused. We don't need that many parameters. All we need is like this relatively small and lightweight operators. So let's take these operators and combine them in different ways according to the sentence, and this will give us the module neural network. Yeah, that's, that's a nice overview. I guess we've been talking about how you might model structure on the language side. Do you know if people have talked about or tried to model structure on the image side as well? For example, using a scene graph parse or something like this? I'm, I'm really not familiar with this, so that's I don't know. That's a great question. I'm probably not much more familiar than you are. There is a lot of work in the vision community on a scene graph parsing. I am not familiar with the model that was applied to something like VQA or Clever that uses scene graph parsing. You know, for VQA, you can imagine that's being done because the visual genome, which is the main resource for scene graphs, is using real images. Of course, these models won't translate well into something like Clever, where it's a, it's a very different distribution of visual stimuli. Oh, right. I'm, I guess I'm remembering a recent paper that uh, someone talked at a reading group I was in recently. This was on Clever, and they decomposed the problem into uh, parse the language to a program, parse the image to a scene graph, and then execute the program on the scene graph. And they, because it's synthetic data and they had labeled exam, like labeled data for both pieces, they could do this and get quite good results. Though it, it still seems questionable to me whether you, whether this applies in something with a more natural images. The visual parsing is going to be a whole lot worse and we don't have, like, we can't generate a whole bunch of training, training data for the graph parsing kinds of stuff. So yeah, I don't know, still, it still remains to be seen, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's interesting. I'm not familiar with this specific paper, but when you are working on synthetic data, there is always the risk that the approach that you will develop will rely too much on the synthetic data and transfer poorly to the real data. And I think the concern that you're raising is, is a valid concern. I don't, it's not really clear how we can get this kind of annotation at scale on real images. So you have mentioned that uh, the neural module networks did perform best in both NLVR and NLVR2. I wonder whether you've seen like a similar pattern, like the, the ones that tended to do work well for NLVR also work well for NLVR2 or not. Okay, so I'll be more cautious. So for NLVR, model neural networks work best for, for models that weren't developed specifically for NLVR. So there is a 
more uh, recent work that these are models that are built specifically with NLVR in mind, they perform a bit better than a model neural network. So there is CNN-BIAT from uh, the UNC group, and there is another model called CMM that I can't remember exactly from where that is, and they perform slightly better than a modern neural network. And when you say built with NLVR in mind, do you mean like they're designed specifically for this data set and nothing else? As far as I know, these systems don't report results on other data sets. So they, they, were, they were really kind of developed, I think, looking at uh, some of the properties of the NLVR task. And that allows them to perform a bit better. I think, I think I, I'm not sure, for CMM I might be wrong and there, are, and there are also results on Clever. I'm not sure, it's worth someone to check the paper. But on NLVR, like when you look at like models that are kind of like we just downloaded and ran without much tuning, then a model neural network from those does best. Film also does pretty well. On NLVR2, the situation is a bit more complicated. Most of the models do, are actually pretty bad on, on the data. Uh, model neural networks that doesn't uh, get such good results. Film gets a bit better. The only method that actually makes a dent that is, but it's still a small dent, is actually a maximum entropy model with features that are based on object detectors. So that data set is a, and I think, you know, we'll probably later on talk about open questions in this domain. And NLVR2 is very much stands as an open question. So I guess the, what I'm trying to get to the bottom of is if I'm trying to approach a very difficult problem, based on your learning experience with those, these two data sets, would you recommend starting with a synthetic data and then so that like we can we can start working on this problem, which is very difficult, and then switch later to a more natural kind of data set? Or would you now, given this experience, would, would you recommend starting directly with the more natural choice? I mean, so I would actually develop on uh, and report results on both of them. I think that more synthetic data will probably allow you to uh, experiment faster. At the end, given an approach, I would try it on both and see what happens. I think that's what makes, uh, you know, given the available resource, that's, that would be a good evaluation uh, strategy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I would say the danger in starting with a synthetic data set, you can take the baby data set, for example. A lot of NLP folks love to hate on this. I've done it myself. But small synthetic data sets like this can be useful if they are well-constructed. So like Clever, for instance, seems good enough to develop reasonable models because, as you have said, at least the model architectures that were developed to solve Clever are currently the best models on NLVR2, right? So this did give us... On NLVR, sorry. NLVR, not NLVR2. Uh, oh, no, no. Okay, sorry. Um, so so learning this, like, the, the synthetic data set did, in fact, give reasonable uh, advice or like a reasonable problem to do architecture improvements to try to solve it. In contrast, something like Baby or, or a data set that's not very carefully constructed could lead you to make poor modeling decisions to optimize the synthetic data set, like modeling decisions that aren't realistic at all. Just as a very simple example, if you look at one of the earlier papers that got state-of-the-art results on Baby, it had three separate embedding layers for every word, which makes no sense at all in, in terms of like real language. The, the embedding layer is like the largest part of your model. And if you, if you have three of these, you're just going to way, way overfit to anything real. And so like it is the case that some synthetic data sets will encourage you to make bad modeling decisions for the case when you want to actually switch. 
I would say it's a lot of it is, is up to you and on your design decision. So there, there is a lot of risk working in synthetic data. And that's maybe where I would recommend to work on that together. So using synthetic data as scaffolding within your development process, but get back to the real data as fast as possible. So you won't find yourself in a place where all the work that you have done actually has no implication on real tasks and real data. Yeah, and it's really hard to tell like whether the design choices made when you're constructing the synthetic data are reasonable or not, right? You can usually tell after working on data for some time. So I feel like the caution of like, yeah, make sure that you have both data sets to work on before spending a year working on it makes a lot of sense. Yep. Okay, so far we've talked about what visual reasoning is, what data sets people have used to do visual reasoning, what kinds of models tend to work. I think now is a good time to talk about, as you hinted at, Yoav, what are the interesting open questions that uh, we still need to look at for visual reasoning? Okay, so the, so the obvious first question is like, you know, how well are we doing? Are the problems solved? You know, the results on Clever are pretty high. It's like, it seems like uh, the differences are becoming uh, meaningless. NLVR2, the baselines that I experimented with, are doing very bad. There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, some of them are related to the to complexity of the language. Some of them are related to the complexity of the visual input. I suspect that they require a lot of original thinking of the learning procedure, maybe what kind of training data you use. So data think is a, is a giant open problem. The, po the problem itself is, is far from being solved. Then there are questions of, I think there are a lot of interesting questions of data. So we worked very hard on getting a lot of a, a broad semantic representation of, of a different linguistic phenomena in NLVR2. But I don't think that, the, that our process is optimal. I think there is still a lot of room for improvement. And this is maybe more general for the NLP community. We need to think about how to create data collection processes that are able to get us a diverse representation of uh, language and of semantic uh, phenomena. Because we want, yes, we want to solve the, the easy common cases, but we also want really to test our models on the complicated, interesting uh, cases. So for example, and in NLVR, we did, we did a lot of analysis on it in NLVR too. And you can see that, so we did a, a pretty good work on comparatives, but I think we could have gotten more interesting representation of a cardinal reasoning. So we got really good representation for cardinal reasoning, much better than existing resources. But I still, I still feel it can be so, it, there is so much uh, other phenomena and it's kind of like, you know, the arithmetics in language that, uh, that we are not even getting, not even getting it now. Yeah, that's a good point. One thing that I've been thinking about, and I guess I'll close with this last question. You could imagine criticism for NLVR or for any kind of complex reasoning that you express in language. Why should we care? Why is this an interesting problem? Like, isn't this totally unnatural? No one would really ever want to ask this about an image because I could just look at the image and I know what, what's in it. Like, why, why is this interesting to focus on? And, and it, this isn't just about NLVR2, this is also about GQA. You said it was like heavily nested kinds of language. Why? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great question and I can, uh, and I can give two, two answers. And I think it's like, you know, it, they, apply to, they will appeal to, different, to two different types of people. Uh, I, I probably uh, span both types. I think many are, many people do. So on the one hand, I think language is interesting. I think that, the, you know, we are here to study language and I want to study the full diversity of natural language. So complex reasoning, even if it's rare in, a, in daily usage, is something that I would like to understand better. I would like my models to do and I would like to understand this data and this phenomena and how it, and how it can be learned from different types of data 
this is something that I would like to explore. This is something that at, at least attracts me as an NLP researcher. So, but this is this is very much not answering your question because you said nobody uses it. What's the application? You're right. Nobody's going to ask these things about images. But there are tasks where these kind of like complex reasoning do, are going to appear. So if you think, for example, about you know. This is, might be sound more science fiction, but robots that follow natural language instructions in uh, assembly scenarios or maybe in large storage facilities, you do see a lot of uh, reasoning about comparisons between sets, about uh, cardinality. You know, when you, when you try to tell a robot, for example, take this package and put it on the smaller uh, pile of packages or something like that. You know, this task has other components like planning and execution and, and uh, generating actions, but the visual processing and the grounding of the language is actually very similar to the kind of stuff we see in NLVR too. Yeah, those are great answers. Um, I'll add one of my own also. I've been building similar complex data sets for paragraph understanding. My answer to this question is there are reasons to pose these challenging reasoning tasks more than because I care about the reasoning itself. It's that I want to understand what I'm asking about. Like I want to, how, how do I show that, that a system really understands an image? What's in an image? You can't just ask simple questions. This isn't about the question itself. It's about understanding the image. And uh, in order to show that I really understand it, I need to ask complex stuff about the image. This, this is how we query each other about how we know that we understand stuff. Like if you're trying to give a, a student an evaluation in, a, in some school setting, um, you will give them artificially challenging questions to be sure that they understand. Similarly, for reading comprehension, I can ask complex questions, not because I care about the questions themselves, but because I want to know that the system really understands the paragraph. And then if I can understand the paragraph or understand the image, then that has lots of implications down the road for general reading systems, general systems that learn from general visual input and like actually understand what's going on. And you can imagine doing really crazy stuff with that in the future. But first, we have to know that we understand. And that's what this is about. Yeah, so I like this. This is basically, uh, we are going to use language to probe the understanding of our AI uh, machine learning algorithm. Right. Great. I think we should call it there. We've been talking for quite a while. This is a really interesting discussion. Do you have any last thoughts or something that we missed that you really want to talk about quickly? I think this space has a lot of open problems. A lot of open problems with modeling, with learning, with, with data. There are a lot of open problems from an evaluation perspective. There are questions about evaluation that we are not thinking about a lot. I mean, so there are generation evaluation questions, and then there are questions of like, what kind of evaluation really evaluates understanding, whatever that means. So I think it's an exciting space. I hope that uh, the kind of resources that uh, we are releasing, and I know that uh, AI2 has been releasing in collaboration with uh, other people, uh, is really going to kind of like encourage people to pick up the challenge and, and make progress. And I hope that we're going to see some exciting things. I'm sure we're going to see some exciting things in the next few years. Great. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. This was really fun. Thanks, guys.